internet. My God, it's only Tuesday. My name is Matthew Kroll. And they can consider this shit a market adjustment. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film No Sudden Move. What would you say? I'm just, I'm standing still. Stop it. Do not freeze so the people at home cannot see you more than they can't. I was going to say, this is a lame start to the this podcast. A, that it's a, that's we, if only podcast. we had a guest to make this sound cooler. <laughs> and we do. And I'm thrilled to have back on the show Blake Howard from the One Heat Minute Productions podcast, or series of podcasts at this point. Blake, all the way from Sydney, how are you, sir? I'm great talking to you, lads. It's so good. Sydney is uh, a bit of a complete shit fight right now, which you guys have probably seen on the news with uh, uh, the Delta variant of the coronavirus. Yeah. We are in uh, we're in a deja vu uh, March lockdown <laughs> from 2020 <laughs> sort of deal right now, really ratcheting up. So it is actually a, just a scream to see another part of the world yeah. uh, where people can get vaccinated and uh, to talk about Steven Soderbergh, which is uh, pretty pretty exciting. I, I have to admit, I've been obviously I follow this because I have family in Fiji and New Zealand. Um, it has kind of been an amazing turnaround since the last time we talked to you, which is that America previously was the shit show of the entire planet, which is that we just didn't understand what COVID was. I mean, we still kind of are, but yeah, I <laughs> we get still it. kind of are. Yeah. And New Zealand and Australia was on the opposite side of that spectrum, which is that people there understood that this was a virus and you needed to stay apart from another. And as long as you did that and wore masks and be and were careful, then the virus would have no opportunity to spread. Unfortunately, what's happened now, uh, just uh, to catch people up on the virus if they aren't aware at this point, is that Australia and New Zealand both have uh, a little bit of a vaccine uh, deficiency in, the, in terms of the vaccine getting out and people being able to get the vaccine. Is that kind of where you guys are at? And then the, the virus is spreading in uh, that with is, that as well. That is- that is as simple as it is. Uh, yeah. You know, we still got uh, overseas uh, people coming back from, uh, you know, out of Australia that are coming back. Uh, and we've had this whole, you know, Australia is a giant island, yeah. as is New Zealand. It's its own kind of like two-part giant island. So there's this whole like if you just control the people coming in and you shut things down and have lockdowns to squash the virus, then it won't exist anymore. But it's not that simple. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's basically as simple as it is is, if you're vaccinated, it goes away. And in our country, particularly the promise of vaccines, you know, being delivered as as early as like the end of last year, it just has never happened. And they've been, you know, taking their sweet ass time and going deferring, oh, there's no problem, there's no problem. And now with this variant, because it's so crazily much more infectious, yeah. uh, it's just, um, it's impossible to stop without being vaccinated. And so it's, it's kind of this holding pattern now where Australia and Victoria back in various lockdowns again, trying to squash it, but really the only long-term solution is a vaccine. And, 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 and it's as simple as that. And also in Australia, unlike you guys, you guys had like Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer, those things, right? Yeah, Moderna. Yeah. 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 Moderna. Well, in Australia, we had AstraZeneca, which is based on a from a UK company, and AstraZeneca is the one is the one that like has has blood clots associated with it in people under forty. So they recommend that for, for the longest time, it's been that anyone over sixty really should take AstraZeneca, and they're the high risk, so you should give it to them first. And in Australia, it's been like no one under 60 can take it. Well, now because we're in this situation, it's like everyone should take it down to 40. And even our GPs are like, no, you shouldn't take it. So wow. it's just like we need we need that sweet, sweet Pfizer from the US. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, we, need, we need someone, uh, we need someone uh, you know, 
Don Cheadle esque <laughs> to go wheeling and dealing. Yeah. To to go wheeling and dealing and get me some of that Pfizer, baby. And yeah. then and then maybe our, our lives can return to normal. But yeah, at the moment it's not looking like, you know, we're absolutely, you know, do everyone's doing the best that they can in the circumstances, but there's just no there's no way out unless everyone's vaccinated. And yeah. that's the whole point, right? Like with with a pandemic, it's like, well, if you have a vaccine and you vaccinate everyone, guess what happens? Mm. Ta-da! The, ta-da! Yeah. yeah. Well, with all it's of a that, miracle. Like, I mean, I guess my next, my follow-up question is how are you holding up? I mean, kids at home, not going out. Like what, what's the what's the day-to-day for you? Uh, look, I'm st- uh, my, my life is, in, in the words of my favorite movie, my life is a disaster zone. No, it's not really. Um, it's a, my, 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 uh, I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm studying. I'm still, still doing work, still podcasting. Uh, I'm studying at the moment as well. So that that's helping. I'm also, you know, um, doing that. So I, I've kind of, my life belongs in a lockdown. Like really right. my personal, yeah, yeah. like me as an individual, I haven't got my office set up. I have like thousands of Blu-rays. I have books. <laughs> I have, I have talking to people like you. So I'm pretty good. The challenge is like whenever our kids can't go to daycare and yeah. things like that, yeah. that's what's really hard. And this, that's just their socialization. You know, those got, you know, I've got a four-year-old, almost five and a, and a newly three-year-old and they just relish spending time with their friends. So now fortunately we still can. Um, I'm, I'm, a part-time teacher right now. I'm studying um, uh, to, to get my full degree, but I'm sort of doing some teaching. And uh, so my kids get to go to daycare because, uh, you know, my, my work is essential. So that's okay. But I just, you know, we, we really miss, we have a little getaway. My, my wife uh, and I have got this little getaway in Australia. It's called a, in Australia it's called a caravan in America. It's called a trailer, but we've got a little getaway down, down the South coast, uh, uh, past Sydney, about an hour and a half, like right near the water. It's this little, uh, this little caravan park that we go down there and we, 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 we built, bought a caravan on site there yeah. and we can't go there because it's an yeah. hour and a half away. You can right. only stay within 10 kilometers, which is about, you know, five, six miles of your house in our current lockdown. And man, if we could just go there and I could surf and my kids could run on the beach and yeah. uh, I mean, it would change, I mean, it's winter, but who cares? Like just playing in the sand or whatever, it would change our lives. But it's, that's what's tough is just like, you, I just want to be out in nature and I, I want to go out and do those sorts of things, but it's just really hard. And, um, and you know, we're in one of the areas, it's more strict lockdown. So it's now just like try and be tactical, support each other, be super understanding and, and all those sorts of things. But I think for me, what's saving my life at the moment is like, like FaceTime and Zoom chats with guys like you because I'm just like, oh, I can actually interact. I, th- that human impulse to interact with people actually gets satiated in these situations, whereas like it is very easy to just, you know, dive down a rabbit hole and not interact for days at a time. And it's just completely <laughs> unhealthy, right? So, very much so. Um, in fact, it's, it's so, you know, Zoom Zoom has, uh, it, is a, it is a boon, no doubt. And, and even when people sometimes ask uh, when they come in the podcast, oh, do we need to do video? And I'm like, kind of? Cause like the, even the way, yeah. like when you're telling the story and I see you're getting excited about it, like I naturally get excited about it. And like, you can kind of sort of see yeah, where it's people, an energy thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, no, it is definitely a necessity in, in this and also, the possibly darkest timeline. <laughs> Yeah, and it also like my friends and I have been doing movie uh, some movie trivia nights of the last little bit, you know, and, and had a great cinephile uh, game with some. Well, I've got a little pandemic film club. Shout out to yeah. Jen Johans, nice. Travis Woods, Jedediah Ayers, and Jordan Harper, my absolute favorites. But we had some extras, some ring ins like Walter Chore and Sean Burns, and yeah. uh, come and hang out with us, which is so great. But I've been doing it with my my local friends, and it's just always interesting to see what states of dress my local friends are in. So my buddy Johnny last time. <laughs> 
he he just he just rolled into a Zoom chat and he's just like completely shirtless, like eating eating food on the middle of the thing. Like and and I'm just like and everyone's like, hey Johnny, are you gonna go shirtless this time? Um, but and like it's just a nice thing. He might surprise us. It's gonna be Saturday <laughs> night in Sydney. He might be shirtless waiting for us for this Zoom chat. You never know. So it's so exciting. It's funny what you find exciting in a lockdown. But I'm excited at the prospect. I I knew I knew I was um I was getting to the end of my my Zoom rope when my friends and I uh basically planned a over the internet beer pong competition <laughs> so everyone had tables and at the end of their tables was their camera and if you set up your two sets you and you just move cups as they go and you have breakout rooms you can actually have a beer pong turn oh my god uh Let's see so there should be a tutorial for this that's yeah. <laughs> I, i'm gonna need that i'm gonna chat chat with you offline now yeah yeah, yeah tutorial no, on how to set that up <laughs> Well, uh, Blake, you've also been producing podcasts in the interim as well. We still are. I'm still yet to catch up with the Zodiac Chronicles. I've uh, been listening to Increment Vice uh, and, of course, One Heat Minute. You've also recently, uh, quite to, to my excitement, announced your, uh, your new series, which uh, will be starting soon based on mm-hmm. the uh, absolutely delightful and rewatchable uh, Peter Weir film, uh, Master and Commander. I think, what was it called? Podcast and Commander? Podcaster and commander, yeah. Podcaster yeah. I mean, look. Sometimes that sometimes the title makes that pushes that makes you over the edge. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Like you, you, you know, in some of my projects, that's what's happened. <laughs> um, I love uh, Master and Commander. I, 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 I feel like all the movies you pick are a lot of my comfort movies. And I recently rewatched Master and Commander. Um, the Weevil joke still kills me every time. Yeah. Um, what was the, <laughs> what, what brought that particular film out? I mean, other than it being brilliant, but what was the, the you know, like of all the myriad of films you could pick, uh, what brought you to um, Master and Commander? Well, I think I find myself, you know, as you said, there's like a comfort in movies. And I remember, you know, probably, God, like let's just say 20 years ago, conservatively, there was a Master and Commander special edition DVD. It was one of the first special edition yeah. DVDs that I ever owned in my life. It's this sort of like brownie colored, uh, mm. it's the same as the, so similar to the cover that we've like mocked up for for the show. And I had this special edition DVD and it was one of the first special edition DVDs that I can remember. My brother bought it from the United States and we're here in Oz. And, and I remember consuming voraciously all of those special features mm. at the time because I couldn't believe how they did it. Like I just, mm. it, 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 the, the special effects were imperceptible, yeah. the scale of it, how heartfelt and how, you know, when, when you're at a formative age and you're looking at like male role models and those sorts of things, you know, you're looking at these, what it means to be a man in a, in a former context. And it, it, there was a lot of similarities and there was just something that really touched me. And I always had a fondness for the movie for many, 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 many years. Now, as I've grown up, obviously I become connected to different directors at different times. Mm. And I can unequivocally say as an Australian guest on the oh, show, yeah. there is yeah. no better filmmaker ever in the history of Australia than Peter Weir. Now, Dr. George any, Miller. Yeah. No, sorry. Dr. George Miller gets some plaudits <laughs> yeah. uh, because obviously the Mad Max series is so uh, influential on many genres of cinema yeah. and blockbuster cinema and, 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 and it's influence touches, but pound for pound film for film, Peter Weir is just incredible. And, uh, he just disappeared. Yeah. Well, he stopped making films. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. 
and and you know some people have said that it's like that he had fam there was health uh, concerns in his family which just sort of made him pull away. But he never like left in a in a shame or a shambles. You know you you may say that his last film isn't great, but you're comparing it to Dead Poets and Witness and Gallipoli and the Truman, the Truman Show, Show and, Master, mine, yeah. and and Master and Commander. And so he just always hung around because you watch these movies and I've recently binged uh, Witness and the Mosquito Coast mm. uh, because it was just that weird crossover. I'd watch Presumed Innocent because I'm a mm. Pakula yeah. lunatic. And yeah. then I, and then I was like, I love Harris, some Some of those offbeat Harrison Ford stuff. So I went to those and I just marveled at it. And so then what happened was I watched it and I was thinking about what shows, you know, a lot of our, the the films that we cover are things that I, I feel like when I mention them to people, exactly as you said, you're here, there's something that happens. You go, God, I love that movie. And maybe I haven't seen it in like five years, but that movie's great. And then invariably what happens is I sometimes plant the seed with my close friends. I'm like, I'm thinking of doing this. And usually we have that combo. And then a week later they watch it and they go, God, that's good. (laughs) You got to do it. (laughs) And so, so what happens is I then get that positive reinforcement that that's there. And, And so what I've just tried to do is think of these films and there's upcoming ones too, but Podcaster and Commander came about and I just feel like genuinely that it's a hugely important film, that Peter yeah. Weir is a hugely undervalued and important filmmaker. And as soon as I started putting it out, my feelers out to my really close friends and then my peers who I usually tap to be a part of the shows that we produce, they were just like the gush coming about Weir and how important he was to them just mm. reinforced my instinct. So I, I, I really try and be instinctive about this, about what's that thing that like lures me, but also again, unhealthy relationship. I can watch, I've since announcing mm. it and in the prep for announcing it, I just watch it again. I can watch yeah. it again and again and again and again, and I can't get enough. And so that for me feels like when, when things like that happen, it's like the universe was speaking and I should listen. Yeah. That's a, it's a, it's a pretty incredible film. I also um, came out around the same period as the Lord of the Rings was kind of winding its way into, uh, well, it already wound its way into the ether. Uh, And a lot of friends of mine had worked on it um, and uh, uh, told me stories about Peter Weir at the time. And the sort of the, I think the amazing recollection I have from friends who worked on that film was um, despite not being a person who was as well versed in visual effects as say Peter Jackson was in terms of the minutiae or James Cameron at the time. Uh, they said it was amazing to watch Weir work on scenes in master and commander because he approached it as a painter, uh, and he approached scenes as a painter would. Uh, and so his thinking was about light and composition and style and what is the meaning of the shot. And that's the way they all had to think about visual effects as opposed to technology. Um, and it's, it's, you watch it now. And again, I, I kind of think it might, cause it was, a, it was a prestige film as well. It might be one of the last sort of prestige blockbusters, uh, you know, which yeah. is a grand in scale, but also, you know, like high, you know, high art in terms of it's, it's, uh, it's attempt for meaning, uh, and what it's doing. But then oddly at the same time, this is, this is my last recollection. We, we should jump away from it. There's a sort of beautiful episodic quality to that film where you go, I could watch 10 more. And, and, you know, of course, the book is based on several different iterations of those two characters, but I could watch many more episodes of this. And I know there's been an announcement where they're talking about developing further Master and Commander films now, but there's that just weird sort of insular, this is a single adventure in these two people's lives that I 
think about the the sort of greater history around them quite a lot. Is there? I, I, yeah. I was jumping back. Sorry to the prestige film, like the blockbuster prestige film, right? The concept. Does yeah. it go Master and Commander, and then we waited till Fury Road? Is that like kind of <laughs> the timeline? I, I, I don't think Fury Road fits into the same really? mold as as what Master and Commander is in terms of <sighs> it's a blockbuster. Master and Commander has like a much piece. older throwback quality. Oh sure, uh, if you want to, if you want the the, the that's my personal right, opinion. Right. It's arbitrary at best. But 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 it's it's I, I don't think you I don't think you're far off in that there was definitely a time where people looked at IP so Master yeah. and Commander you know Tom Rothman who was at Fox at the time who greenlit the film and literally handed Peter Weir a saber <laughs> and said, I want you to take this. Yeah. And Weir being a Patrick O'Brien nut goes, yeah. O'Brien, like he knew, right? Yeah. Um, and Rothman still says it's his proudest film working there. There was a time that that happened and right around that time you got Lord of the Rings, right around that time you've got Fast and the Furious and then not too long after you get the, you know, and you've got the Dark Knight movie, mm-hmm. the, yeah. the Dark Knight trilogy manifesting and then eventually the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And when all that happens, there's an opportunity for Hollywood to take a pivot to to, to shoot towards films that are more like Master and Commander. So rather than there being but they don't, nine yeah. fa- Fast and the Furious, there's, yeah. there's, you know, there could be all of the O'Brien books. There are 20 books, right? Yeah. Well, the other film that came out in that period is the um, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. And, and so we had a choice between Pirates of the Caribbean and Master and Caribbean. Commander. Yeah, and you got a choice Pirates there. Of the Caribbean. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, there, then it becomes about what is a, a an amusement park ride as movie or what is a film. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, it's a really interesting turning point. There's lots of great topics of conversation. So that's what I'm excited about. I'm excited about the history. I'm excited about the, the O'Brien nuts. So if there are any O'Brien nuts that are listening to this, please hit me up on uh, one Blake minute uh, on Twitter or on Instagram. Cause I'd be keen to hear from you. Um, but yeah, the, I want to talk to people who are obsessed with O'Brien. I want to talk to some historians. I've got some connections with some of the best Napoleonic historians in the world. So um, I'm looking forward to chatting to some of those folk. Of course, our normal cachet of the greatest film critics and, and filmmakers in the world who want to talk to us about this as well um so yeah i'm really excited about it i can't wait but also today literally minutes into this podcast i hit go on what is probably the pinnacle episode of the zodiac chronicle series which is the interview interrogation scene with arthur lee allen that features mark ruffalo um uh, the uh, mark ruffalo and uh, elias codius obviously john carroll lynch um and, and and John Carroll Lynch is on the show, so uh, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty exciting time for me producing these things. Yeah, that's amazing. I I, I love that scene, and I love uh, I lo- I'm I'm holding out on the Zodiac Chronicles in terms of uh, listening because I do want to do a binge, and I revisit that film so often that I'm kind of like I often feel z- fully Zodiac out. Uh, it literally is a it's a twice a year movie for me at this point. Um, yeah, I I look. I have issues. Um, so <laughs> a movie that should make me exhausted um, often oh. makes me obsessive. So uh, I feel you, but yeah. I, I I can just promise the listeners, you know, if you've listened to One Heat Minute or All the President's Minutes, which are like minute by minute deep dives, this is a... Uh, this is our most ambitiously produced show yet. And so I've have, I had a ball producing it and it's just, yeah, it's, it's exciting that it's all starting to come together. I think Zodiac is one of only three films that I've seen one night and gone back immediately to watch again. <laughs> yeah. That's way better than mine. Mine was Mortal Kombat, the original one. <laughs> um, but but in fact, one actually, sorry, when I say one of three, there's actually a fourth. There is a fourth now. 
and that is the movie we're going to discuss tonight. And that that actually was a that was a coincidence. I, I just realized that I did that with uh, no sudden move. Uh, we are here to talk about Steven Soderbergh's latest film, which I'm very excited to have you on the podcast for, um, Matt. I, I do want to dive into sort. Of, I, I want to break this down a little bit, topic by topic. What? Uh, but could you tell us what Steven Soderbergh's No Sudden Move, or written by Ed Solomon, is about? Oh, oh, oh! I absolutely could. Well, I will reiterate what the beautiful minds over at uh, IMDb have said about it. A group of criminals are brought together under mysterious circumstances and have to work together to uncover what's really going on when their simple job goes completely sideways. Interesting texts in that they use the word together twice very quickly <laughs> it Is felt weird it? okay uh, i mean oh, yeah. sorry i just i mean i you uh, know you're going down a rabbit hole matt when you're starting to grammatically critique correct. imdb yeah. synopsis welcome yeah. to my, <laughs> all specific niche. It, it, this they is, are all bad this They're is what i bad. do i think about them too much and i will correct everyone I, I i also like listing out how actually accurate they are this is a very accurate depiction yeah, yeah. of what the yeah. film is so i appreciate Definitely. that I, it's yeah. funny when when the only problem i have is the grammar it's normally a good sign <laughs> uh, the the release of no sudden move uh in the united states uh was on hbo max which happened to coincide with uh, a wonderful release of neo-noir films on the criterion channel which i uh, mm. have been binging recently uh which adam Naiman uh had recently written an article about uh where his first line and i love this was when dennis lehane joked in 2011 that the only real difference between greek tragedy and noir was that in the former characters fall from great heights and in the latter, they drop from the curb. He was pinpointing something simultaneously mythic and fatalistic about the American crime fiction tradition, the idea of cautionary tales being told at street level. Um, Blake, love Adam. He's been on the show. Yeah, he's on Zodiac a couple of times. Love Adam and love that piece. And I have been absolutely like you, binging the living daylights out of that Criterion oh, <laughs> Neo Noir collection. It's because that's right? how we survive lockdown, baby. We get on that VPN and we do not let our American friends have all the fun. Woo! Oh, oh, so they don't, you don't have Criterion Channel in in uh, Australia? I do. Through yeah. VPN. <laughs> and listen, yeah. everybody, legal legal people in the audience, uh, we're not condoning doing anything untoward about media consumption, Never. nor would we ever suggest that you do. <laughs> the end. <laughs> the good pregnant pause there. Um, yeah, so uh, no, Criterion is not technically available in Australia, but you are able to pay for it, and I also pay for a VPN, and then I watch it and enjoy it, and those things happen. Yeah. And this noir collection, I think I, I feel like uh, th there's a lot of they, for example, they have an art house animation collection right now, which I really like. It has one of my favorite films on it, Mind Game, um, and I've been meaning to see Belladonna of Sadness for a while. But I feel like noir or the neo noir uh, collection that they put together was something that was again there was like a level of comfort for watching these movies that some of which I've seen before many times and some of which I've never seen, but I feel like noir is a genre that I am happy to dip into at any moment. Oh, and, yeah. My, and it's, it's a default genre. Like for yeah. me, I, any one of those films I've put on, I'm just like, yep, totally what, happy to sit and watch this happen. What, uh, what has been some of the standouts from that collection uh, as it, you know, as we'll get into no sudden move? Uh, look, I'll I'll have to say um, I, I have to say seeing so 
what is a highlight? Seeing Brick there yeah. <laughs> was a highlight, as in yeah. because I love Brick so much and seeing that the Criterion Channel had actually curated that, which yeah. is such a, a film that I hold really close to my heart was great. But no, I, I, the one I will shout out, just because it's from a filmmaker who I deeply love and I haven't had an opportunity to see this before, was Curtis Hanson's, uh, Curtis Hanson's The Bedroom Window, which right, is from yeah. 1987. It's the one where Steve the Steve Gutenberg, Gutenberg is, right. have, is having an affair with Isabelle Huppert. Uh, <laughs> and during one of their nights of love, uh, he she stares out of his bedroom window and sees a woman being assaulted on the street by this sort of crazy serial rapist and murderer. And her their intervention um, uh, stops that from happening. And because they don't want to share that they were both together, he then takes the reins of being the witness for the crime. And it's directed by Curtis Hansen, who mm. directed, you know, yeah, LA Confidential. Yeah, yeah, I mean... Yeah. Yeah, but, uh, but <laughs> LA Confidential was the kind of movie that broke him and also, you know, one of my favorite films of all time. And um, so, yeah, my friends in our Pandemic Film Club watched that together and I just really, really liked it because it was more of a surprise packet for me in there. Um, and also The Big Sleep Mm. Starring Robert Mitchum from the 70s that uh, uh, completely transplants like uh, LA to the UK. Um, Mm. I thought was like a really great sunny noir uh, in that it's not as dark and dreary. It kind of turns that on its head in a way. It does have its noir moments, alleyways, darkness, you know, trickery, whatever. But I actually, that that, that might be my favorite Mitchum um, as Marlowe role. So yeah, no, those two, probably my favorites as a surprise. But I mean, Chinatown, I've watched 550,000 times and I watched it again on the Noir Channel. And then I went and watched Two Jakes again. And then I watched Chinatown (laughs) again because I'm a (laughs) lunatic. But uh, that's the kind of thing, those movies, you know, very special and especially Zodiac and Chinatown have a, a deep kinship. And so, uh, yeah, I, I love movies like that. Yeah. I feel like looking at the, uh, at the lineup of movies on your, uh, on your networks, uh, it seems to fit that genre as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. for me personally, I think, uh, Arthur Penn's night moves was one that I was really surprised by Gene Hackman in so an great. early role. That so, ending so is pretty amazing. Great song too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. Um, and then the other one that will lead us into Steven Soderbergh uh, is Sutra, which is not a very well seen movie, but it's one that um, my college professor at university was obsessed with and invited the filmmakers to our university to, to actually screen it. And I, and I, I was running projection on it uh, a couple of nights. So I actually watched it like three nights in a row uh, and then got to hang out with the filmmakers um, uh, afterwards. And it's a, uh, and Soderbergh actually produced it. And I believe Soderbergh actually put some money into it or helped um, get it into distribution as well. And um, I think two years ago, they did a retrospective screening of it here in New York. Um, and I got to go see it there and Soderbergh was there and it was a very small screening. And so I actually chatted to him for a little bit after that. Um, and uh, the the fact that that was quite it's quite an experimental noir film sutra this this podcast is not about sutra but everyone should watch it it's an amazing crime <laughs> film uh, about uh, two twin brothers who uh, uh, who uh, get into a case of mistaken identity or uh, purposeful mistaken identity but they one's played by an African American man and one's played by a white man and nobody in the film comments about it it's you know these two people do not look alike except all the characters believe you know just say it's amazing how much alike you look like uh, my brother but they're played by two different actors. It's an amazing film. And Soderbergh, for all his blockbuster qualities, you know, the directing the Oceans films, winning Oscars, uh, I think one of only a few filmmakers that has been nominated for an Oscar against himself and won, uh, in the case of Traffic and Aaron Brockovich, uh, is a filmmaker that is simultaneously uh, a huge money earner, 
uh, but also one that experiments and makes movies on iPhones. And um, I was sort of curious if we could perhaps go down the rabbit hole of Steven Soderbergh for a minute. And I tried to think of a clever <laughs> name for this. Uh, I'm going to call it the Soderbergh Shuffle at this point. And, uh, you know, we can maybe okay, come we'll, up with we'll a for that. We'll workshop We'll workshop it. that. We'll workshop. Um, but Soderbergh was an important filmmaker for me. I've talked about him a lot on this, uh, on this podcast. Uh, I'm curious if we could just kind of like, kind of gauge where you're at and this might actually take a while. So I'll try to do it fairly, fairly quickly. I have the title though. I have the title. (laughs) Okay. What do you got? It's the Soderbergh stream. The Soderbergh stream. Like the Soda stream. The Soda stream. Soderbergh stream. I was going this, the Soda Burrow, but you know, like Soda Burrow is good. Yeah. Well, um, this this show could just evolve into a naming pitch. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just see who's got the yeah. best alliteration so, for S's. At this point. Yes, yeah. Of course. Um, of course. I wondered if we could do kind of like a just a real quick like it, lump it, or haven't seen it with mm. uh, a bunch of Soderbergh movies. I'm going to try and run down the list really quickly uh, mm. because th- the thing is, is there are so many different movies here, and they're so varied in genre. So hopefully, by the time we get to know sudden moves. Uh, we might get a sense of where this person is or what kind of movies they make. But obviously, I, I doubt very many people have seen Yes, 90, 90.1.2 Live, his documentaries that he made before, Six Lies and Videotape. There's a couple other video shorts there. But Six Lies and Videotape uh, was the sort of phenomenon that brought, put him on the map. At 26 years old, he won Khan. Uh, I believe he won the best uh, screenplay Oscar over Do the Right Thing, which is a little bit of a controversy in that period. Um, for me, love it. You guys, Six Lies and Videotape. Yeah, I've actually, uh, funnily enough. Oh, do you have it right there? Right now it, it, it's it's actually in my stack to my to watch pile. The Criterion. The criterion. Says, I love it. it. Yeah. I, oh, I I have not seen it. That's what I'm saying. I've not seen it yet. Sadly, to my detriment. But I have heard and 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 read things about it. Yeah, terrific. Uh, absolutely amazing film. And then and then you've got this period which Soderbergh calls his most important films that he made. The next three movies because nobody watched any of these movies. <laughs> no. And they all bombed. I haven't seen any of them. They bombed royally, uh, and he said these were the films that kind of helped him to figure out what kind of filmmaker he was after that early success. Uh, so, uh, Blake, you haven't seen Kafka, King of the Hill, The Underneath? No, None nothing. Matt, any of those three? I feel like I've seen King of the Hill, but I'm trying to remember it. it they're, they're pretty hard films to remember. The most memorable one for me is The Underneath. It's a sort of uh, crime thriller. Again, Peter Gallagher's in it. Um, it's it's I I think these three films are actually pretty good. Uh, they they demonstrate Soderbergh's kind of like experimental side plus his sort of crime genre and and I think we want to kind of we'll talk, we'll get to a point where we talk about what Soderbergh is really interested in through this list. Um, Schizopolis. Anyone see that? No, I've I've only seen clips from it because I didn't know that it existed. But it's him in it. Like yes, this like wild thing where he basically does absolutely everything in the movie. And uh, some of my friends were like, you've got to watch Schizopolis. He's like, it, it's, it's really terrific. It's like, it, it's his most sort of uh, like almost like avant-garde silly movie. Yeah. Right. It's, it's uh, Matt. Have you seen? Schizopolis? No, no. I, I, I'll tell you when I jump on. I jump on, and then I'm pretty. I'm, right now, I'm like, I think I saw it. That's the movie with the kid in the hotel or whatever. But no, <laughs> I, I uh, yeah. No. Schizophilus is amazing because I think he 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 gets the deal to do out of sight. And he realizes that he's about to enter this sort of studio filmmaking world. And he has a little bit of a panic attack about that and says, I've got to go make something where I've got complete control of it. So he goes back to Texas and stars in it, uh, directs it, um, scores it, uh, puts it together really quickly. And it's basically a series of silly vignettes, um, which are sort of nonsensical, but tied together by this idea about (laughs) miscommunication and language. There's this amazing sequence in it where... 
uh, people basically talk in gibberish terms, but have whole conversations in gibberish. Um, and, and like they seem to understand it's pretty amazing. It also features lots of shots of him masturbating, but you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> uh, Grey's Anatomy was an amazing documentary um, uh, about Spalding, oh, Spalding Gray, one of his uh, um, sort of amazing monologues. Uh, again, not a lot of people saw that. Do you guys see that, Grey's Anatomy or no. any of those? No, I haven't seen, haven't seen Spalding Gray. But his uh, next one I did. This is, this is the one. This is the one that put him on the map, Out of Sight. Yeah. Out of Love Sight, it. I saw because and it was kind of before i was paying the amount of attention that i pay to films now because it was two years after from dusk till dawn right so george, and clooney, it was was on. george was... clooney was playing a criminal <laughs> and i was like oh yeah i love this movie like and i went and saw it I, I did like this as well but that was what got me in the door was from dusk i was like this is the same right, yeah let's go and it uh, was not yeah but i mean look seth seth gecko had had you know d- deep influence yeah, yeah look yeah. i've pretty much seen save maybe one film, uh, one or two, and one of the TV shows, I've then seen every single other film. Everything, that everything, everything from yeah, that point yeah, on. Yeah, Out of sight, much. absolutely love it. Um, okay, so we'll, we'll kind of run through these. The Limey, yeah. you just kind of chime in. Uh, Terri- the Limey, terrific and underrated. Aaron Brockovich is like, uh, I would put that up as one of my favorite investigative movies yep. uh, alongside all the President's Men. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely, if you see, he, and if you know that Soderbergh loves all the president's men, you know, that this is his, his most, uh, I guess, force right attempt at creating the conditions that creates and all the president's men with Aaron Brockovich. I, I truly love it. And, uh, and then of course he wins the, I believe he wins uh, the directing Oscar for traffic at the same time. Uh, and traffic wins best picture that year. Um, a phenomenal film. Uh, mm. Then we have the ones that really like make Soderbergh a household name. Ocean's Eleven, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Full Frontal, and Solaris. No, those aren't the um, but but the Ocean's trilogy begins at this point, and that's really perfect where we movie. Get known. Yeah, Ocean's Eleven, perfect movie, perfect heist movie, one of the great heist movies of all time. It's I will controversially really say, I prefer Ocean's Twelve. Yeah, we know. I, <laughs> I think Ocean's Twelve is actually the jewel in the crown of the trilogy. Uh, but that's a whole different. Well, thing. you're wrong. But that's yeah, yeah. In no, one whatever sentence, you 100 correct. About <laughs> in one <laughs> sentence, here, I want you to tell me why twelve is the best one. In one sentence, um, Ocean's Twelve is the Smokey and the Bandit of the franchise. That doesn't explain everyone shit. Having, I want to know why. Everyone's having a great time, and that movie is a blast. <laughs> I'm not saying it's not it's not fun. Oh, it's 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 without a doubt the best. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, can I can I can I put a counter? Ocean's yeah. Twelve. Is, is the everyone most having the most fun sure. of all time at a joke that was told five minutes before the movie starts <laughs> that we have no clarity on for the entire running time? So as an audience member, you're like, oh, cool, this is alienating. Everyone's having so much fun, and I don't give a shit. You walked into <laughs> the Ocean's party where 11. everyone's having a blast, oh and you're God. like, what's so funny? It's like, oh, you, got, you oh, had dude. to have been there. Five minutes uh, ago, I, I, you should have I, seen I love this movie so much for look, the fact and that, look, that, I don't wanna, that I don't it feels like all in jokes between these people. Listen, in in sexual terms, I don't want to yuck your yum. Okay, <laughs> so whatever you enjoy, I want you to continue enjoying it. I'm just saying to you unequivocally, Ocean's Eleven is like a a a, a watch <laughs> being put together. Like it is just seamless cog after cog structure, t- cut, music drop, needle drop, acting eating in the middle of a scene, every goddamn thing in that movie is perfection. That Michael Fassbender gift from, you know, the X-Men movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's like, it's, it's just, it's as, it's as good as it gets. 
I, I find I, I don't know why I find Ocean's Eleven a little dull. I find it. You a better keep dull. rolling down I these names. Ocean's Come on, just keep going. But no, okay. Look, I think we're getting to the, all of this here. I guess maybe, perhaps, instead of going through these one by one, any highlights from the later period after the Ocean's franchise for Soderbergh that kind of interest you? The informant is so good, so good. It's, it's such a- so, so funny. Like, and if you're in the right mood for this movie, there may not be a. a funnier movie that Soderbergh has done again Matt Damon and Soderbergh do such tremendous work together and I think he just utilizes him in arguably one of his most well-crafted and hilarious performances in his whole career I just love the informant and Contagion is the movie of our age right like yeah it is it's it, it. Uh, and, I, I'll say yeah, Magic ahead. Mike Magic Mike is yeah. amazing like, incredible yeah I mean that was- and, and I'll say and I might say the controversial opinion now here Magic, Magic Mike, Mike is Mike, Magic Mike is fine. It's fine. Magic Mike, Mike Double XL is yeah. a stone cold masterpiece. It's yeah. one of maybe the greatest movies about men that has mm. ever been made in the history of cinema. I will die on that. Uh, I will die on that hill every time. Like I think Magic Mike's a good, fun movie, but Magic Mike Double XL is is outlandishly great and wonderful. And and then uh, you know I, I I really like Behind the Candelabra again, another yeah. Matt Damon performance, but um, Logan Lucky. I think that that's the best Ocean's movie that's not Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, is Logan Lucky. I would agree with that. Logan Logan Lucky blew me away in in a like I was like he's not gonna be able to do it again, and then I was like fuck he did it again. Like there, it was it was a very wonderful surprise. I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was. Yeah, yeah I, such a great movie. Um, Magic Mike. I think I just I remember seeing it in the uh, you know in the audience opening night, and it was just such an incredible opening night movie. It's it's just mm. such a it's a movie that like everybody in the theater is just having such a great time with. Um, okay, pre COVID, I have to tell you this year, Matt. I have to tell you, there was a Magic Mike Double XL premiere uh, in in Sydney, and okay. they created the biggest like uh, sixteen by nine wide screen screen in the history of our country, and I think the biggest one in the world. They just erected a brand new one. It was only there for one night at what used to be the Sydney Entertainment Centre, but before they sort of adjusted it, knocked it down, refurbed it, whatever. Um, in that theatre, there were three and a half thousand people. Okay. And Channing Tatum and Joe Manganiello were in attendance. Nice. Right, to introduce the film. Of the three and a half thousand people that were there, maybe 30 straight men. Sure. <laughs> uh, and the rest women and, uh, and and beautiful, glorious gay men relishing the opportunity to see Joe Manganiello and Channing Tatum either A, in the flesh and B, in the flesh in the film. Right. <laughs> and that was the wildest screening I have ever been to in my life. The energy in that room was, I, you, I mean... It was like being on a wild boys afloat. What you <laughs> yeah. imagine that is, is like this. It was insane. Insane. The the dance sequences in the movie, the there were roars of cheers that were louder than anything was happening on screen. It was out of out of control. One of my favorite screenings I've ever been to nice. in, in my life. I gotta say insane. Joe Manganello, Joe Manganello yeah. is uh, a national treasure. <laughs> and yes. uh, if this is my this is the thing I want in my life, I'm gonna I just, I would just say this because I'm a huge fucking nerd. If I can ever if I've if I've ever made it to his D and D table, I have made it the farthest <laughs> I will ever make it in my entire existence. 
um, right. I I can uh, I can confidently say this. I've uh, directed Joe Manganiello in a piece that we did over at MTV years ago, uh, and he is a delightful human being, very uh, uh, very funny in person. Speaks perfect Spanish, which came to a surprise us for one of the gags we were trying to do. Uh, and also, this was the one of the most the funniest things was that uh, we got his uh, dimensions before and his sizes before he turned up on set because we had to get wardrobe ready for him. And he and I are the exact same size, except. Everything about what he is is beautiful, and everything about what I am is a sad sack of shit. But he and I are the exact same height, weight, like everything just, is the just, exact is it same. Proportionally every- dis- distributed differently. Oh, it is. It, that like, must with- that that's that's like having a walking body dysmorphia, like yeah. uh, something in front of you, because it's like, wait, we're we're the same, but you look different to me. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I look Joe. just side by side. These don't line up. Uh, yeah, one, one of these looks like, not like the other. One Hilarious. looks like He Man, and the other looks like a melted piece of wax. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which is don't be so don't be so hard on yourself. Hey, now. Yeah, you're a perfectly fine, not yet melted piece of wax. Yeah, I'm a perfectly. <laughs> I mean, people mistake me for Joe Manganiello all the time. By the way, they're yeah. like, you know what? Yeah. I see it. I um, see it. I, I but, want to say one other one other yeah. film uh, in his filmography that I didn't even know until I was literally just scrolling right now. Did you know that Steven Soderbergh <laughs> executive produced Bill and Ted Face the Music? Yes, he did yeah. because Ed Solomon wrote it. I just yeah. didn't put two and two together. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, that, that was, that was one of his big things last year was that, uh, he was working on the release for, uh, Bill and Ted's, uh, excellent vision. And, Soderbergh. And, yeah. Sorry. And he ahead. didn't direct magic Mark double X. No, he didn't yeah, direct he magic. He's a cinematographer. Oh, it. yeah. He shot it. I think yeah. he edited it as well. Yeah. He's, he was really involved. Like he was a yeah. camera operator on it. Like he was literally on set every single day. Like, yeah. Doing it. Nice. And this is the other thing about his work ethic that I think, I, like as a filmmaker, I just find mind blowing, uh, because I, I one of my the things that I'll point out here is the neck. Uh, I think the neck is just mm. phenomenal, uh, and sure. it uh, blows my mind that basically he turns up on set every day on the neck. He shoots it, directs it, then as he's going home, we'll edit the episode. There's these mm-hmm. amazing stories about him, uh, basically sitting at rap parties in the corner with a laptop. Uh, with the first cut of the movie that they've just worked on while everyone's kind of enjoying the rap, he's actually just been working the whole time and editing together. So there's a great story about him, which is that um, he is often his own cinematographer. I think, I think just after the oceans film, that sort of started happening. I think it was around Shay uh, because he wanted to experiment with the red cameras, uh, which he had uh, started working with from David Fincher and um, the, the director's guild wouldn't allow him to have his own name as a director as well as a cinematographer. So uh, it's often listed that his direct, uh, that the cinematographer on his film is Peter Andrews, which happens to be his father's name. And then at some point he started editing his movies as well. Uh, and uh, the same situation happened with the editor's guild and his, um, uh, so he edits his movies under the pseudonym Marianne Bernard, uh, which is his mother's name. So it's a nice kind of touch that uh, he's actually involved in all those things, but it's a tribute to his family. And it's yeah. consistent with No Sudden Move, which he also and edits and shoots. <laughs> and it's, I, I absolutely just cannot wrap my head around that working process. I know we sort of talk and think about Robert Rodriguez in that way. Yeah. Um, and it sort of makes sense when you see a Robert Rodriguez movie that it has that sort of like scrappy aesthetic to it in some cases. But Soderbergh movies are Soderbergh movies. You know, they're, they're highly polished and, and, and 
um, put to, and well put together and well directed and beautifully conceived. So to have this, and, and that's just not the way Hollywood modes of production work. So to have this one person kind of doing all of this and then experimenting with it along the way, you know, for a filmmaker like him to make iPhone movies, and I think he's made two or three of them at this point, um, is pretty amazing. With all of that said, with all that preamble, let's finally get to the movie that we're here to talk about. It's only 40 minutes in. I mean, why, you know, it's fine. (laughs) I think we should do this like Blake would do it and make the make this episode far longer than the actual movie itself. <laughs> <laughs> Blake, what did you think of No Sudden Move? Uh yeah, look, in in a nutshell, I I loved it. I thought it was it's just my it's deeply my kind of movie. Uh it felt to me like Soderbergh and Solomon set up a game of chess, but the none of the pieces were gonna do what they were told. Uh, it was oh, riddled great. with, uh, actors who I could watch, read the phone book. Mm-hmm. And so you immediately have that. And there's a level of confidence and style that, uh, Soderbergh movies have. And, and, and especially in the last few movies, uh, like let them all talk. And then, uh, uh, the laundromat and also, um, the high flying bird, which is just mm. outstanding. Like some of yeah. his recent director streaming films, there's just a way that Soderbergh shoots and he said it in this way a couple of times, which is like, I don't want you to do a flashy anything. I don't want to see flash. You, you have to convince me that when you do a flashy shot, that not doing a traditional shot, like shot reverse shot or like a twofer with two people or like tracking someone across the street or, or a nice like steady pan across a, something. You have to convince me that that basic shot, like that we learn in film language is not the one that you should have used. And so that's what I get when I look at him. He has this instinctive Soderbergh only style. I don't watch him and go, wow, he's trying to do Scorsese. I don't watch him and go, oh, look, he's doing he's doing Jean-Pierre Melville there or look, he's doing this or he's, oh, he's a bit of a Kubrick fan. And that cannot be said of some of his contemporaries because you watch them and they're like, oh, Paul Thomas Anderson, Boogie Nights is basically Goodfellas. Like that's, yeah. you know, that's, it's, that's the energy that it's shot with. Or you look at like Kubrick doing Interstellar and you're like, dude, can you just get off Kubrick's dick for like three seconds? You know, <laughs> like you watch these things happen. And I think much like his... One of his best friends, which is David Fincher, who's a director that I love too. Um, I think they both have such unique styles. And Soderbergh is, he's just, I, he, he, I watch his movies, I'm like, oh, this is a Soderbergh movie. But it's not, there's nothing bad about that. Mm. That's not to be said in any way that is diminishing the art. I just love it. It's confident. It's slick. Um, and in this film, he used, uh, there's this weird effect that happens. Uh, there's this sort of weird fish, fish eyed compositions yeah. with trippy motion at the edges. And I found out that he used these, uh, lenses called Panavision C anamorphic lenses, 35 mils. And if you move the camera, it has that weird like motion. And so there's also this surreality of about it that yeah. I love. And so, yeah, it was just extremely confident. Solomon just wound this text so beautifully tight great actors doing unpredictable things. And yeah, I just, I, I was such a big fan of this. It just, it's the, exactly my kind of shit. You know, when people mm. say like, that's my shit, Soderbergh, no, no sudden move. That's my kind of shit. Just, you know, you, you don't have to sell me this movie. This shit sells itself. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's my kind of film. I really, really enjoyed it. Matt, how about you? Uh, I, I too enjoyed it uh, quite a bit. I, I, I don't think I came on to it as much of a as, as as much as Blake you just described it. I I think the way you just you mentioned though that the 
there is a level, and I couldn't place it before, and now I can, of confidence. Like, this mm. entire movie is a full-on confidence showcase. And, yes. I mean, it also is about characters that have to either portray whether or not they succeed or not in a confident sort of moment. So it's <laughs> yes. all like, it's like the metaverse of confidence. And that I loved. Again, acting, phenomenal. I really dug, at first I thought I was going to hate, I really dug the lens. Like, I loved that effect yeah. with it. Like, it 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 took me out of a conventional mindset, like, 3%. And I was like, oh, yes. okay, you've delivered me somewhere. Thank you very much. Um, yes. I will say, I mean, you, you've gushed about all the things I want to gush about. The Oh, and, and Kieran Culkin, which I did not expect to be in the film. I was <laughs> delighted, as always. Yeah, um, I was completely shocked and surprised too, Matt. I love Kieran Culkin. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because yeah. I forgot to mention him, but he was just like a mini highlight. Yeah, it, like was such a, it was such a lovely surprise. Um, the thing where it it didn't... Oh, oh, and I'll say one other thing, sorry, that I really liked that, that you didn't bring up. The um, I love stories like this that have to do at like the core of the MacGuffin or whatever with an actual historical event. Mm. Yes. And and the the big auto company is doing the things with the Cadillac convert. That whole story is, I mean, there's different versions of what actually happened because spoiler alert, history is complicated. Um, <laughs> the, the, the element of that, like the second I learned that the whole thing was about a fucking, the plans for the Cadillac converter. That was a story like my dad told me, but like when I was like 12 and I didn't fully understand like the implications. I'm like, that's weird. Like, why wouldn't they want to sell a thing? Uh, but it was just one of those things where I was like, yes, I'm in this now. Where it lost me is by the time you hit two-thirds, three-fourths of the way through the movie, the, the there was just so much of a rhythm of, well, this happens, but another character will be ahead in the game. Mm. Like, it was, that was, um, it was almost like, you used a watch to describe the goodness of Ocean's Eleven. It was the predictability of that here that actually knocked me off because by that point, two-thirds, three-fourths through, I was like, well, this doesn't matter because someone else is going to do something. And I was like, yeah. and, and, and that predictability actually took me out a little bit near the end. Again, it is yeah. not a deal breaker by any means of the imagination, but like yeah. – at that point, I saw how the machine was running, and because it is running like a machine, I was like, okay. And I just sort of, like, rode with it. Like, believe me, I'll, I'll watch garbage that is far worse than this. Uh, and uh, so that that pulled me out of, like, the wonderment of the film by the end. But I had such a good time watching it, um, and I, I actually look forward to – this feels like the kind of movie I'll watch, like, every, like, I don't know, like, four to six months and to catch yeah. new shit. And like, yeah, it was it was such a lovely surprise. But uh, what about you, Shahir? Yeah, I think uh, both of you have summed up uh, thoughts that I had about this movie, which is that it it really was um, such a that sort of sense of immediate comfort when you're watching it because of the confidence and style. And I'm glad you brought up David Fincher because I was thinking about two of Soderbergh's contemporaries at the same time, which is uh, David Fincher and Quentin Tarantino, um, both of whose last films were historically based uh, recreations of eras, which this is as well. And there was a part of me that just watched this and thought about what it must be like for David Fincher and Quentin Tarantino to watch Soderbergh do a historical recreation and just go, this fucking guy. Like, it's just, <laughs> it just seems like, like, whereas, and he I doesn't, and, there's no trying. There's, yeah, no, there's no artifice. To it. it just feels so It doesn't so seem easy. like there's any effort. Yeah. It's and if you think about easy. that compared to Mank, 
And once upon a time in Hollywood, where everything is an affectation really and dry. everything is a construction and like a very a sort of noticeable construction. Now, this is again not to diminish from those two films. They're very I, good tries, but they're trying. Like it's but, like that's not a they're doing, doing something. Yeah, they're doing something. It. You're seeing the work. And when you watch Soderbergh do what he does, is you never see the work. You just feel like, well, that's the film that he made. And it's like he's he's such a chameleon as a filmmaker that I think you know early. Uh, early critics of his or, you know, people who are trying to decipher his work were sort of got, trying to figure out what kind of auteur he was because mm. every film was so stylistically different. And it was sort of in this one where I kind of, I, I think I started needling down into like what I think his auteuristic uh, tendencies are. And then, and as you know, uh, Blake, as you kind of mentioned, they're not stylistic things because he is a person who is um, a chameleon, like when it comes to style, he experiments, he tries new things. Um, but I think, you know, the nexus between capitalism and crime is something that he has kind of worked on his entire career. And I think and I, I don't think it's sort of like um, or touristic in the in the sort of traditional sense of the way, which is that it is, uh, you know, something that he's plugging away at and trying to explore with every film. I think it's just his worldview is that crime and capitalism are, are sort of two halves of the same coin. Bosom and, buddies. And, 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 that, <laughs> and, you know, like and that's the way not only his films happen to work, but the way he sees the world. And, and I think that was never more sort of evident to me in this particular film um, in that, you know, yes, this feels like um, a version of Chinatown. Um, you know, it feels like that kind of story where a small investigation opens up into a bigger world, which reveals this, uh, this sort of idea that, that the uh, criminals and, and, um, who we perceive not to be criminals, the, the the capitalists and businessmen have a lot of the same structures and hierarchies in place and are playing a lot of the same games. And um, they're, they're, they're interacting over the same weird Venn diagram as well. Yeah. It's like there's that whole um, – the only crime that is reduced mm. in the last 50 years is small-time shit, robberies, yeah. thefts, uh, the more heinous – individualistic crimes like serial killing and or just murder because there's more cameras and camera phones and tracking yeah, mechanisms yeah. of all those sorts of things. But guess what crime is thriving? <laughs> and doesn't white get many movies made collar crime <laughs> is a booming baby. It is just it has gone from strength to strength. And there's a lot of people that like to talk about it in ways that are just like you know that it's like oh it's not a crime it's it, it's it's they have massaged and uh, their own their own brand of what white collar criminality is and and so i absolutely agree with you that soderberg just has a very uh i would call it not i wouldn't call it a bad worldview or, or, or i wouldn't say it's extreme i would say it's just an extremely pragmatic worldview yeah, yeah. about what how the world on. operates yeah he sees what's going on he sees how the world is and not what he wants it to be, rather what it is, um, and he just accepts that and 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 wants to make sure that he shows those that interconnectedness because that's what I think you're you're talking about Shahir is that interconnectedness of these systems that are working. And I just love that when you're a white collar crook. Oh, so, so sorry, when you're not a white collar crook, when you're actually like a, a lower level crim, like you, uh, mm. Kurt Goins on Cheadle's character, you're making moves, mm. and everything's working until. <laughs> you intersect in the Venn diagram with a white collar crook and you start taking his money. Yeah. And then the whole thing, all of the artifice that blurs the lines between legitimate business and crime is just gone because you realize that some of the same hierarchies intersect. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. I, I, I met, I think there's a part of me, 
that really does agree with you that the the last third of this film kind of gets into this sort of area into this territory where suddenly the the puppet master of of all of this is revealed and the puppet master in this case we can spoil it at this point uh is matt damon and his character is the one that is behind everything uh that kirk goins is kind of identified and figured out and i what's interesting here is that essentially the the two uh antagonists of the film meet for the first time and really are mano y mano for a little while and it it there's something about that that doesn't quite work in terms of the status of where these two characters are like kurt goins seems to have figured out not only what a catalytic converter is and what it means but also the larger implications of climate change and and how that affects like the racial hierarchy and redlining of right. of america and he seems to do that like immediately which is quite possible he is a brilliant character but that mm. is quite a that's quite a a, a sort of uh, quite a leap in that moment and then simultaneously uh damon's character is pretty the 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 performance i kept thinking about although this is not the one that soderbergh intended um but i think the the, the sort of styling of the room and the, the delivery of the performance was ned Beatty from network uh mm. you know like talking about the into the, the 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 flow of capitalism and the flow of the world and damon doesn't quite get into the same histrionics but he does really talk about this this idea that no matter what you think the world no matter how you think the world works, I want you to know that I am the one who makes the rules for the world that you live in. And that, and, and all of that is high, high melodramatic movie making at its, at its finest, but it's done so well that I'm like, I'm so willing to give it a pass. I I like, I like, why I like that scene so much that you're talking about Shahir is because it's done with a lot of this quite melodramatic tone. In yeah. that moment, like no matter what's going to happen, you're out. And what's yeah. so beautiful is just how boring the reality is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where it's a cop just, this guy. <laughs> just goes and exchanges money with the crooks because they have a relationship. He takes the money back to him and it, it does happen. <laughs> and it happens with a level of boredom and like straight face like, oh, here's your money, sir. I just, we just took it back for you that you just like, it's so complicit and it's so dumb, but it's like, that's what actually makes me ache in this movie and love yeah. it more is that, is that whole, like, I'm going to get my money back. And you're like, oh, you know, Goins could ride away in the sunset if he, if he did and maybe get it back and it will come back around. But in this yeah. movie, it's like, no, we just go downstairs <laughs> and get the briefcase yeah. and walk it back upstairs and give you the money. Yeah, and that's it. And and here's and a here's a it. bottle of a uh, bottle of uh, gin or something like that yeah, for your troubles. Yeah. It's oh, worth yeah. eighty one dollars. Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't give you my money because that would be you know we can't do that. That would be illegal. <laughs> that would be illegal. Yeah. Um. The, I, the the interesting thing there too is you bring up uh, Blake how you know the you know person to person crime, violent crime. I'll even I'll even dub some of it sexy crime is down. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. And uh, and white collar crime is up. The complicity of sort of how society functions. There's a sort of interest there because you bring it up. You're like, "Yep, this is boring." Like the yeah. the way that white collar criminals function is numbers and spreadsheets and connections and like being very polite. And that's not interesting. There's a reason why mob movies, mafia stuff is because like they have an affectation to them and there's a sense of danger and there's like code words for shit. Like this is just like thank you very much. Oh yes, uh yes, have that bottle of scotch. Okay, have a good day. Well, like 
So I know it's not one of his most loved movies, and I know that Johnny Depp is a deeply problematic human being, so we're not going to go into too much depth, but Michael Mann's movie, 2009, Public Enemies, right, yeah. um, has an incredible scene that just enunciates this almost better than most movies I've seen do, which is Johnny Depp's character obviously plays John Dillinger. He's the biggest yeah. bank robber at the time. He's being housed around by different, you know, different organized crime figures because, yep. you know, for whatever reason in the past, it's all worked for him. He's now out of prison. He's kind of in his last gasp before his eventual murder in Chicago. And there's a scene with John Ortiz who is <laughs> – one of the greatest character actors of all time. He plays Phil and uh, Andrea, and they're in a bookmaker's office with a whole bunch of people running book for all of the gambling operations around America. And he goes to John. He's like, "We make more money. We make more money in a morning than you make in a year." Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And what he's saying is, organized crime, this stuff, is is the future. Yeah. And you're just an outmoded old West cowboy that's trying to operate in our new landscape. The whole movie is that collision of new and old. And you see in that moment that like what, what John Ortiz's character is saying in that moment is stop creating trouble for us because right. then it's not just going to be the cops or the FBI that are after you. It's us mm. because we are equally a contemporary system and you are the old time. Yeah. And he doesn't have to say much. It's not a it's not overdone. The scene's not like out of control or anything like that. It's just this very subtle scene, but I think about it often in that respect because it's like you're creating too much noise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And 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 these more contemporary views of like organized crime as being like, you know, just an office, <laughs> a bunch of phones, a guy in a suit. It's a- just, Amazon it's not paying any taxes. <laughs> like, like we all know, we all know Amazon didn't pay taxes. Everyone knows it. Yeah, Everyone it is, knows it. Is it. Criminal. <laughs> but if I don't pay taxes and I don't earn anything. If I if I don't pay taxes, I go to jail. Yeah. And the highest earning company in the world pays nothing it's it's like but and and it's like it's it's beyond like it's saying the quiet part loud to people that don't want to hear it (laughs) and you're like where did uh, fuck oh shit they just released a new he-man series on netflix well fuck it all right like and and i'm part of that problem i understand that but this is this is the point that nid nid Beatty makes in uh in network it's the same point that uh brad pitt's character makes in uh, killing them softly Mm -hmm. and it is the point that matt damon makes here is that no matter what you think uh you got away with in this room I am the one that that sets the rules for the way this game operates, and yeah. whether you think whether you think you got away with this or not, this will all come back to me in one way or another. And without a doubt, within the next few seconds, he is pro- within the next few minutes of the movie, he is proved correct as the as the operation of the world brings that money right back to him, and mm. nary any is the wiser. And and I think there's a, the the interesting thing about this for me is that while I think. The mano y mano of Don Cheadle and Matt Damon being in a room together, basically, you know, um, explaining what it is they're doing and, and how they got to this point. Um, you know, and I love Matt Damon's line as he walks out the door. He says, reach for the moon, gentlemen, reach for the moon. Um, <laughs> is, is that the story of the catalytic converter is one that 
is one that I think not a lot of people know about. And I, many a think piece and editorial piece has been written about how this movie has elucidated that to them and, you know, and, and how I think the other connection that Goins makes in this movie, and I think that one that feels like a contemporary connection that is made by the writer and not necessarily by the characters in the movie, that the connection between the catalytic converter, climate change, redlining and redistricting <laughs> of uh, African-American communities. That, I mean, again, that is a pretty uh high level academic thing to like come to those conclusions the, to put those connections together but the movie the characters do mm -hmm. is that the interesting thing is that another movie that we reviewed on this podcast came to the same conclusion and talked about the exact same thing but can either of you i mean uh, blake you wouldn't have been on the podcast but matt could you matt <laughs> no, could make you blake remember go through our back catalog no, right, well, let me, could you <laughs> remember another movie that we have done that specifically talks about the catalytic converter and its role in climate change. Wait, give me a second. Uh, uh, shit, 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 shit. Yes, give me ten seconds. Uh, 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 Russell Crowe. Yes, Russell Crowe yes, film. You're correct. Fuck, fuck. <laughs> Ryan Gosling. Yes, Russell Crowe. Ryan Gosling, the nice guy. Nice guys. <laughs> That's another movie that uses the same device. But yeah. it's one where I bet you not a lot of people remember right. that that is the central MacGuffin of that film is the catalytic is the story about the catalytic converter. Yeah, and, but uh, you know Ryan Gosling swims with mermaids and, and yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know no, and yeah. mist, misty mountains and and there's lots of other silly nonsense in that movie. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. My my point being is that while at the same time I th I think it's kind of done handled. Uh, a little bit didactically and a little bit clumsily in this film as a storytelling device. At the same time, it really gets the point across and it is trying yeah. to make an effective point about how all these pieces connect together. And it's just doing one it of, very tightly. One of my favorite things that I've ever been, this has ever been said to me on a podcast, Manola Dargis, um, mm. the great film critic was talking to me and she goes, Blake, we all, we all allow for our romantic things in movies. You know, we all have different tolerance levels. It's like, so you get something as authentic as Michael Mann's heat, you know, authentic with guns and authentic with tactical maneuvers and police procedures and all those sorts of investigative things and the landscape of the, the Los Angeles area and bank robberies and all that stuff. And then we just happily believe that Amy Brenneman's Edie, who's a graphic designer can live in that house with yeah. that view of LA. And this is the romance that we will allow for ourselves. And therefore, this is what I would say to you about no sudden move in that moment. I want Kurt Goins to be prophetic yeah. because I think that that's the only thing that you can do against a figure who is inevitable is to go, I see the game you're playing. And that kind of gives you hope that Goins maybe for that split second, maybe Kurt Goins is going to get out on top. And then like three seconds later, he doesn't. And you're right. like, shit. Well, but at but least in that moment, that's the romance personally. And so that's where I like, I have less of a problem with it. Cause I, but no, I agree yeah. with you that, that it happens, but it's like that. What is yeah. your, what is your romance you will allow? And I want oh, my, yeah. my hero in that moment to have suck because <laughs> on, on the flip side, you've got the amazing Benito Bill. del Toro playing oh, Ronald yeah. Russo. Yeah. Who, has got these quaffed hair and his guys and dolls outfits and he needs to put a blanket over a hostage's head so he can lean back and have a drink and rest back on her chair with his mask off because it itches his face. You know, and you got him and I'm like, he's not going to win. It's yeah. all over for him. But you're hoping that Kurt Goins as this, you know, former, you know, ex-con out of prison, maybe he he's, he's figured something out. 
And and I think my point there is I I I actually agree one hundred percent agree with you, which is that I love this ending. I love Matt Damon and Don Cheadle in a room together going mano y mano. I think the movie yeah. kind of like yeah, it takes a little bit of a leap of faith to, for us to get to the point where the movie has gotten to. But I love this moment because I love I love that the film is making these connections. And then what I love about the in terms of like the way the film kind of sees consequence and uh consequence basically for these characters is that Kurt Goins actually you know like doesn't get the 120,000 or whatever it is the 120 plus another 50 that's in the bags but he does get the 5,000 that he wants to get to get out from under um uh Bill Duke's character mm-hmm. and to and 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 he has scored one over Frank Capelli um uh Ray Liotta's character and he gets his five thousand dollars and he's gonna go back to was it uh Tix oh, I can't remember where he was gonna I go to where he was going. Uh Kansas City. He was gonna yeah. go back to Kansas City, Kansas City and he was gonna buy that piece of land back for five thousand dollars or something. And it was like that's all he he's like that's the best I can hope for and that's what I'm gonna walk out walk out of here with. And if he doesn't make it dead, that's a that's a bonus. And then if he gets his five thousand, that's even better. Listen, and I love the way someone, the movie does consequence that way. Coming you know? from someone who enjoys a casino now and then, uh, that is the best possible scenario you can actually have: <laughs> yeah. is just walk out with exactly what you need, know when yeah. that is, and leave. And know what that number is, and don't be greedy. And if you get it in the first hand of the night, that's when you that's walk it. out of the casino. You go to the buffet. Yep. You yeah. Eat. Yep. You get the hell out of there. <laughs> And again, in that sort of Soderberghian uh, amazing confidence in terms of like what my story is, the opening shot of him is walking towards us. The last shot of the movie is him walking away from us. And he's gotten what he, you know, like in that, in that, in, in those two shots, he has taken what he needs and he's moving on. Uh, and I, I just, again, I, this is probably one of my favorite movies of the year. Um, and there's just, you know. there's kind of a simplicity to it all and an ease to the whole thing that just makes it, I, I, I again, I I just got to think about David Fincher and Quentin Tarantino watching this, going, this this fucking guy. How does no? But this is like his third movie of the year, you know. But they love it. They love it because Fincher and Soderbergh are like best buddies. They share an office together, and this is the same thing that happens. Fincher can watch a Soderbergh movie, give him advice, talk to him, appreciates his style, and then other times Soderbergh will do the same. Uh, But they but they have completely different styles. Like Soderbergh tells a funny story. Is like one time. He's watching Fincher in a screening uh, room story, with, yeah. a la- with a laser pointer and the camera's tracking and there's a bump <laughs> in the shot and, and Fincher freaks out about the bump. And he's, yeah. wa- and he's like, no, get me a cut that doesn't have a bump. The bump is going to take people right out of this scene. And it's almost an imperceptible bump. This is him being just a complete psycho. And Soderbergh had to get up and leave the get out and leave He's the like, room, I, can't, yeah. I, can't, I can't be in a room with you because you're too nuts, like for yeah. me. And, and like, and they're mates. Like it's, you know, you would say that to you, one of your mates, like you're a lunatic with this. I've got to go. Like yeah. I can't be in the room with you while you're working. And yeah. and that's that brilliance of their relationship. I think it's just beautifully modulates between what their personality is. And with Soderbergh's, it's no muss, no fuss. Yeah. Clear craft. Um, and Tarantino's craft is one of like this incredible cinephilic library of every single shot and feeling that a movies have made him feel in his life. And Fincher is about a complete tonal consistency that wants to strangle you. And so I think they're, they're all operating at these completely 
insane levels, but they're all doing slightly different things. And I think Soderbergh's method, that clarity allows him to make more things and he's not writing his own scripts and sometimes he's not canvassing for his own stuff. Um, So that means that he can make films pretty quickly. Um, But yeah, nonetheless, the toil that he goes through for every film is pretty, pretty special. I think the the sort of amazing thing there is that um, Tarantino is obviously known as a well-versed cinephile, you know, someone you wouldn't, uh, who, who knows every VHS cover in every in every video store, um, but Soderbergh is also an incredible cinephile. Like he is a person who's so well versed oh. in the history of cinema. And then you know uh, Fincher is uh, a technical genius who you know like understands the, every pixel of every frame. And so Soderbergh, you know, like without the sort of maniacal quality to it. I this is not to again to diminish I- any of their work. I just think that there must be there must be a level of frustration to see someone do it so effortlessly. Um, yeah. As and and so often and well, so repeatedly, like, but I but I, I don't th- I don't think it'd be frustrating. I think that would just go. God, you're good, you cheesy yeah. prick. Like yeah, you went exactly. to Detroit, you, prick. Yeah. you went to Detroit, you went to Detroit, you found this perfect spot. We, you know, you found this perfect spot. You found this perfect thing. It's so freaking rad. Everything that you did for this, the costumes are insane. The cars are insane. The locations are insane. You got Brendan Fraser. <laughs> Brendan Fraser, like all this stuff. You got all this. You, you just decide to throw Ray Liotta in. Like yeah. 17 minutes the into same, the movie. The same role as, uh, as he had in Killing Them Softly, getting beaten up in the rain. Uh, yeah, basically, <laughs> right? And yeah, it's yeah. Like, but they, I think they would just be impressed. They'd be oh, like, yeah, God, this is They've good. And be- very 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 clean craft, very good. And I think the only thing, if I know both of those filmmakers, the only thing that would annoy them, and I guarantee you they didn't watch it like this, but that it was going straight to streaming. They'd be like, yeah. I want to see a Steven Soderbergh film on a pr- digital right. print at the yeah. new Bev or in my you know local screening room. That's a, and I guarantee you that's how David Fincher saw it. Yeah, David yeah. Fincher that's, watched it in the screening room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's exactly right. I think that, that maybe that's what I'm getting at here as well is that, it's a shame that this film is uh, is stream. Well, no, it's not a shame that it's streaming. It's the way Soderbergh works, and you know, like his films come out quickly. And again, this is like the third film that he had come out in, in the 2020-2021 20, uh, period. He was also at the time producing the Oscars. Also at the time, um, uh, coming up with the actual <laughs> protocols for how movies are to be made within COVID, uh, within the COVID landscape. So he's like, he's just a busy guy. Um, not busy, not busy. No. Do let, do more. <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> and then Lazy. he's you know he's shooting and editing these films and putting them out and you know like that's how it works but the the movie doesn't have that sort of uh i think it's going to come to us without the sort of cathedral like quality that something like once upon a time in hollywood or mank you know mank went to streaming but had that sort of like oh my god look at what they did in terms of the recreation uh it's so good this movie is is so masterfully done um every every level of in fact this conversation you know while i did have qualms about certain way things are handled i the fact that i this conversation has just made me love this movie even more uh you know i've seen it three times since since uh since it came out and i will just watch it all the time i've got to so good i've got to watch it again i've only watched it the once and i it really made an impression um i have an uh, and you know these guys will see but you guys listening i have an, a, a ridiculous pile of things that i a need to watch for certain things that i produce or b want to watch because i'm a freak for film so mm-hmm. i'm probably not getting around to it in a little bit but no certainly one of my favorites of the year on a very short list of movies that i really truly enjoyed um this year and again i i you know i, I always want the option to see things on a big screen but if it means that more people get to see soderbergh movies and he keeps getting to make movies i don't give a shit where he sends them i there just want go. to see them yeah uh, his films also so like uh, that have that quality which is that it doesn't if you see it on a on a small screen it's totally fine 
You know, like they, yeah. they're still I great. Wanna, yeah, still great. Definitely. I, I, I just, I, I've been so spoiled with the with the projector that like it's, uh, we, we've been having this conversation, Blake, because uh, theaters have opened up here and I've been to one or two uh and the 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 lessons i hoped people learned in lockdown uh, uh, of maybe politeness have gone in the opposite direction and people just treat it more and more like their own living room and so my so far my very brief foray back into uh the theater verse has not been enjoyable <laughs> and so i curl back up when i watch this movie i was just like yeah i'm at my house and i got this screen like i don't know like it uh, look, look i i don't i don't I haven't shared it too much i do also have a sweet projector system yeah. set up so uh, my home cinema set up when i want to watch a movie like this i will like you know get the when i watch chinatown i did it on the projector you yeah. know like the kids were in bed my wife was i bought myself a cognac yeah yeah i, I get have a cigar <laughs> what a picture you know you're like marvin schwartz yeah, from, yeah, like, yeah, once upon yeah. a time in hollywood like that's that's my that's my complete jam doing it that way but yeah like you know it, it is what it is yeah. um in the contemporary time and to be brutally honest with you right now in australia when i can't go anywhere sometimes i'm like man please send me a screener like i'll mm-hmm. i'll i'll watch it on my good monitor here and on my screen at home and i'll i'll do what i need to do for this short term but then when the movie theaters open back up you bet your sweet ass that i'll be back in the church seat every week yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. watching anything i don't care what it is i miss that ritual that's what, actually sure i was thinking about this the other day and i didn't bring it up yet i do miss like if we talk about the things that we actually do miss i miss the ritual for this podcast uh you know to actually go to a place that is not my home once a week you called it like the church seat and like go and like see a thing at a place is the yes. experience always great do i deal with the best people no but it it there's some sort of magic to the fact that like okay i am traveling for this thing and, or for yeah. this experience that you do not get when i walk you know it's 20 Matt, feet that i way. am showering for this thing you yeah. know what i mean yeah like, i'm showering i'm putting on clothes like <laughs> I, I i i'm getting like dressed up I'm, I'm planning to meet friends at a restaurant or a, you grab a few drinks before we go mm-hmm. like then go to the theater what do you like to get oh maybe me it's a cold brew from starbucks before you walk in and like some you know some jaffa lollies <laughs> um you know that's some that's some deeply australian shit right there and i'm sure how and New Zealand Shahir might be familiar with it but it's like yeah some Jaffas when I go in and I'm like I'm all in and I I genuinely I miss it I would love to go back I actually can't even remember what the last thing I saw on the big screen was um, here I'd have to go back through in my diary I gotta be be honest with both of you I as a person who treats the movie as basically the movies as a cathedral and like my most religious experiences are to do with movies I don't miss the movie theater which is so I, strange for you to say. Strange, I, I don't strange. miss the movie theater at all. I'm I, and I think it's because the types of movies, or the types of movies that I've been going to see at movie theaters, are movies I don't care about, and the types of things that I've been watching at home are the things that I care about. Like you know, like going to see, like going to see Black Widow in a movie theater just does nothing for me. Yeah, I, and yeah. we talked about this during the during COVID, which was that what I want from movie going experiences are movies like No Sudden Move. I want, you know, those personal intimate films, the ones that actually make me weep or like make me fall in love. The 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 things that I have, you know, that that we've been sort of reserving for theater experiences are things that I'm tend to be less interested in these days. Well well let me say this when when COVID broke originally and cinemas back up, open in Australia, there was a, a one of our little one of our great Sydney institutions, the Cremorne Orpheum. It's this beautiful art deco theater in eastern suburbs of Sydney. Hmm. 
I went and saw over like the first few weeks that it reopened, I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Predator. Nice. Uh, Jaws. Yeah. And then Heat. Yeah. All on the big screen. And I was like, like a lot of them were in like 35 or 70 mil prints. It was just such a treat. And then I saw Tenet, right? Yeah. And so like that was the new one out of all those. Yeah. And everyone was like, how was Tenet? And I go, Eh, fine eh. Eh. It, yeah. and they're like what were the previous four you saw oh like all flat out masterpieces yeah, yeah. way yeah. more entertaining yeah like yeah. the whole crowd in the theater going like off their balls about it yeah. yeah and like even one of them it's deeply confusing yeah like just crazy and so for me that's what i'm really looking forward to is i love these repertory theaters that we have around locally that like you know some of them are more curated with things that are on film and just being able to like go and see great stuff. That's yeah. actually what I found out of the pandemic that I'm most looking forward to. Cause yeah, some of the newbies, you're just like, eh. and like I could go, I could go the rest of my life and never watch a Marvel movie on the big screen ever again. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't it, care. And it's, it's again, it's not that I, I couldn't I, care less. You it's monsters. just that I, I'm sort of disappointed <laughs> that, that basically Sorry. the theatrical no. experience has become about the way, the presentation of those particular movies and like how effectively they're presenting that sort of thing. The last sort of amazing theatrical experience I had was seeing um, a Dolby Atmos screening of uh, Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. And that blew my wow. mind in terms of like, yeah. that that was one of the most technically amazing things to watch on a screen that size mm. and to be so immersed in. That was, and I was like, that's what I want um, the theatrical experience to be about is these movies that are profoundly made by artists who really care about that experience and who are cultivating yeah. something new and innovative in that world. And, you know, look, I, I, I'm, I'm not throwing shade at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'm just saying that those, you know, those right. kinds Let of me. movies just feel, you know, like fast food. And I don't get excited about fast food. I'll well, have it you haven't taken enough road trips then <laughs> yeah. uh, because that is where you get pumped for a fucking Big Mac. Uh, no, I, I, it's weird. The last, the last, like, I, I was trying to think, like, the last, like, truly emotional experience I had in a movie theater, and I'm trying to go back in my mind, but I keep going back to Endgame. And that's not quite fair because that is the culmination of 11 fucking years. But, like, like, I... That, that 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 is to say, I will not bel uh, malign anyone who is not into the MCU thing at this mm. point. In fact, a lot of in a lot of ways, um, people that are sort of I, I I can almost not even almost I respect people jumping off the boat. There is a certain point with sunk cost fallacy where if you're not digging it, yeah, don't watch it. Mm. Like, there's <laughs> no point. Like, it, it's just because it's the thing people are talking about, and, and whether or not people should be, that's a whole other fucking thing. Um, but maybe, maybe I was trying to think maybe, uh, maybe parasite might've been the other one yeah. that yeah. like, that like hit me like a fucking ton of bricks. Um, but, yeah, uh, the, the one, the one before that I had once upon a time in Hollywood was one like that. And I saw this great film called Monos the same year. Yeah. I've, I've seen, seen Monos? Monos. Yeah. I've seen it. Monos I saw it on a plane like, of all yeah. things. And then I came home yeah, and watched I, it again. Yeah. Pa packed theater, Sydney film festival. That's one of the last ones that like knocked my socks off. But yeah, look, uh, it's. You know, this is a great movie, and yeah. uh, whatever your cinematic experience. Again, I don't want to. I don't want to kink shame. I don't want to yuck your yum. <laughs> yeah. Whatever you like, I want you to do that. I'm just telling you, 
me, uh, Blake Howard, this guy who does obsessive podcast series about movies that are often more than 10 or 20 or 30 years old, um, is uh, it's not my yum. It's not my yum to go see these anymore. I'm too old for this shit. That's okay. <laughs> I, I am going to cling to my non-youth uh, and, uh, and I will, I will keep, I will, I will carry that torch for anyone who doesn't want to. By the um, way, did anyone spot the MCU tie-in in No Sudden Move that was sort of like probably maybe inadvertent, but a little subtle? Was that the character Rousseau? Uh, played by Benicio del Toro is obviously, you know, um, I don't believe is necessarily named after the Russo brothers, but that is someone that Steven Soderbergh helped early in their careers as well. Um, oh. And oh. and and in a conversation about Russo, they do he they do say the word "What is your in game?" Uh, for uh, for this, uh, and I thought and I thought that was a nice little subtle uh, drop at uh, at the Russo brothers, who are of course the architects of the uh, Avengers in game. Okay, um, okay. And and again, and Soderbergh has a connection to them in that in that uh, he helped them along early in their careers. Well, all uh, right. Well, all right to you then. Yeah, you <laughs> you picked that up. I did not. Uh, that was just a little thing. I was like, you just because again, so, like Soderbergh's history of like finding new filmmakers and helping them along early in their careers is uh, pretty astounding. I think Christopher Nolan is another one who uh, uh, was supported early, or at least uh, pumped up a little bit by Soderbergh in terms of uh, the way he was interacting with studios at that point. Uh, yeah, sorry, film nerd who still, as much as I uh, poo poo on no, the no, no. universe, again, still spots, again. spots all the little details. No, I, look, he's founding the Easter eggs. He is. He found the Easter eggs. I, I cannot help but feel a little bit to blame for your mind even <laughs> going there. Uh, so uh, apologies slash you're welcome. Uh, yeah, no, good movie. Watch this movie. If you haven't seen this movie, there's no real excuse not to uh, because you can get it right in the comfort of your own home. Um, yeah, and even for my, for my, my middling um, disillusionment by the end of it or just sort of knowing – not being surprised by the surprises because the surprises were being delivered at such a constant and like sort of on time interval. That is in no way to say that those surprises themselves are not interesting. Uh, so I do think it is definitely worth your time, uh, even with all that stuff. Although, of course, we've been gushing about this thing for like, well, really only 45 minutes because we <laughs> were talking about the rest of this man's career for the first 45 minutes. So amazing. Yeah. Uh, any other final thoughts? No sudden no, move? I think, I think we've said enough about this movie. Go see it. Well, this has been the only podcast about the film No Sudden Move. Blake, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome, guys. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for the chat. Thanks for the glimpse out into another part of the world. It's been brilliant. Where, well, you can I, see I, my closet. You can see Shear's closet. You can see all its glory. My real cheap foam and my skeleton named Gibson. Uh, and my cat's in here. I don't know if you can hear her. Uh, where can folks find you and all of the wonderful things that you do? Uh, one Blake Minute on Twitter and Instagram for me as an individual. At uh, OHM Pods on Twitter and Instagram for everything that we're doing there. And just oneheatminute.com, you can find us there. If you're a fan of everything we do, we have links to our socials and to our Patreon as well. So if you can't get enough of what we're listening to, either in Zodiac Chronicle or our physical media show, A Serious Disc Agreement, uh, you can jump onto Patreon at uh, patreon.com forward slash one heat minute. And there's a rum and rant bonus podcast every week, which I do with sometimes patrons, sometimes guests, um, just 
chatting a bunch of stuff. So in the last few weeks, we've talked about killing them softly with Roxana Haddadi. I mm-hmm. talked to this great, uh, uh, another great podcaster and creator, Jim Panola, about his series, An Invitation to the Invitation, which is a beautifully produced podcast series about Karen Kusama's film, mm-hmm. The Invitation, which has just concluded and uh, really terrific stuff there. Um, and I also talked to my friend, Stu Coote, who's one of the chief instigators on One Heat Minute about all things Paul Newman and Road to Perdition as well. So, uh, yeah, have, have a listen um, to that. And, uh, yeah, that's where you can find me and that's where you can find what we're up to. Amazing. That is, that is, that is so much content. Uh, one, one would be it's an embarrassment of riches, my friend. Uh, well, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Shahir, when you are not uh, completely trying to hide your technological advancement in the um, conversion of catalytic material. Where can folks find you? You can find me engineering my way out of my website at www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are the root cause of all things doing with to do with climate change, where can people find you? <laughs> Jesus Christ! <laughs> If I am the catalytic converter, my friend, you are the result. I w- wow! I was I didn't think wow. we'd go that dark. You can find me uh, going to motherfucking space because that's apparently what <laughs> evil people do over at my website at m a t t h e w k r o l dot com. My life and works. Also, Skeletor the number four P R E Z on Instagram and P S N, and of course Emperor M S K on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing over at Extra Credits. I believe by the time this comes out, we will be uh, neck deep. I will say in our Vlad the Impaler series. I believe F3 <laughs> will be out, and that is when it gets fucking brutal. The accounts. Have you, have you guys done a tie-in to Bram uh, to uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker? So we talk about it briefly, and yeah. we might be doing a surprise thing about another thing about more about the literature and the thing and stuff. In Ep Five of our Vlad the Impaler series, we talk more about the legacy and like basically if you if you are famous enough and do enough weird shit society will bring you back from the dead in like a thousand different ways, either as a, <laughs> as a nationalist hero or a fucking monster or a goddamn villain for Simon Belmont. Like there's, there's, there's a lot of different things that can happen. So check out that series. I'm very proud of it. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week in your ear holes uh, with, I, I believe we're, we're going to be going to the farm, Shahir. We may be going to the farm with Nicolas Cage uh, to find some truffles. I think that's probably mm. where we'll be hitting. Oink, mm. oink. Uh, <laughs> oink, oink. <laughs> Blake, thanks again. And um, yeah, we'll talk to y'all later. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.